Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from staff. I'm Damian Garde, socially distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Adam Feuerstein, another week of isolation in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, staying at home in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, May 28th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, we'll preview the big cancer meeting known as ASCO, which takes place online this weekend. Next, Stats Helen Branswell will join us to talk about what's going to happen once we have a working vaccine to protect against COVID-19. Then our colleague Casey Ross will call in to discuss the celebrity physician Atul Gawande, who recently stepped down as CEO of a high-profile venture that was supposed to transform the American healthcare system. And finally, we will remember the fiery HIV-AIDS activist Larry Kramer, who died this week at age 84. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, the Chief Revenue Officer of STAT. Throughout the current COVID-19 pandemic, it is crucial to stay connected to the needs of local communities. Life Science Cares is a collective effort of the life sciences industry working to improve the lives of our neighbors impacted by poverty. I'm here with Sarah McDonald, the organization's executive director. Sarah, how can the life sciences community remain socially connected to help the most vulnerable during this global pandemic in what will likely be one of the most difficult times for many? Life Science Cares is a vehicle for life science companies like Takeda, as well as individual life sciences professionals in Boston and Philadelphia to help the most vulnerable in their communities. Now more than ever, it gives us a way to connect and support those whose lives have been upended by COVID-19 through financial contributions, in-kind donations, and virtual volunteering. Visit lifesciencecares.org to learn more about how Life Science Cares is working to meet the significant and changing needs caused by this unprecedented pandemic and what you can do to help. Like nearly everyone and everything these days, the big cancer research meeting known as ASCO has been forced to adjust to life in the time of the coronavirus. So in normal times, tens of thousands of oncologists, scientists, and drug industry types would be descending on Chicago for five days of nonstop meetings and cancer data presentations. But this year, everyone is staying home. ASCO will go on, but in a virtual format. So Adam, you are a longtime ASCO meeting attendee. Can a virtual gathering of cancer researchers replace the real thing? Yeah, Damien, you know, I think it can in many ways. Uh, You know, ASCO is making all of the data presentations available for on-demand downloading and viewing, and that's going to be free for their members. There are going to be like YouTube-like videos of oral presentations and PDFs of scientific posters. So making this large repository of cancer research available online, I think is going to dramatically boost access for scientists and doctors who, you know, can't fly to Chicago every year for economic or other reasons. You know, I've been speaking to a bunch of U.S.-based oncologists this week, kind of getting ready for ASCO. And, you know, these are folks who've never missed a meeting, right, live. They've, they've always gone to Chicago. And what they've told me is that going virtual will probably increase the number of data presentations that they actually read or look at over the weekend, you know, just because they're not jostling with the crowds or having to run all over that massive convention center. At the same time, though, jostling with crowds is part of the ASCO experience or that of any large medical meeting. You know, it's a lot harder to network or argue about data when you're watching from your living room. 
Yeah, Rebecca, that's that's definitely true. You know, this is the downside to a virtual meeting, right? Everyone is going to be watching alone. You know, Roy Herbst, uh, he's a lung cancer specialist at Yale and a veteran ASCO attendee. And I was talking to him the other day. You know, he told me that he looks forward to ASCO because it's the only time during the year when he can reunite with some old friends that he met when they were all first training to be oncologists. You know, Roy is also presenting data this year during the ASCO plenary session. You know, that is prime time at the meeting. And normally, you know, he'd be standing in front of 15,000 people. You know, this year he recorded his presentation in advance. And like everyone else, he'll be watching it from his house. So speaking of actual cancer data, what is the, the buzzy news heading into ASCO this year? So back in April, a large phase three study of Tregriso in early stage lung cancer patients was stopped early due to what AstraZeneca called an overwhelming benefit. Now, I know the data right now. I can't tell you what they are because they're still under embargo. But suffice to say that AstraZeneca was not exaggerating. You know, Tegriso belongs to a class of drugs that target lung tumors with mutations to a gene called EGFR. You know, it's already a blockbuster drug. It's used today to treat patients with advanced or metastatic lung cancer. So these new data show that using the drug earlier, and in this case, right right after a patient has surgery to resect their tumors, result in a precedent-setting period of cancer remission. Okay, Adam, you have a second ASCO highlight uh, that you were going to preview for us. Break that down. Yeah, Rebecca, I'll go with Allogene and its off-the-shelf cell therapy for patients with B-cell lymphoma. You know, everyone knows about CAR-T therapies, which have demonstrated remarkable efficacy for patients with advanced blood cancers. You know, the downside of these CAR-T therapies, of course, is that they all must be custom-made for each patient. You know, and that process can take two weeks or more. So what's cool about the allergene cell therapy, and again, it's allogeneic or off the shelf, is that if successful, it would be widely available and allow patients with advanced blood cancer to be treated on demand. So that represents meaningful progress for cell therapy in cancer. Well, Adam, we will be looking out for your ASCO coverage this weekend. And if you would like to keep tabs on Adam's digital experience at what is normally a physical conference, you can sign up for a pop-up ASCO newsletter, which he will write each day at statnews.com. There are a lot of crucial questions about what happens after a COVID-19 vaccine is proven to be safe and effective. For example, what does protection against the virus actually look like? And how do you manufacture and distribute something at this scale? Who gets the vaccine first? And what happens if people refuse it? Joining us to talk about all of this is Helen Branswell, Stats lead reporter covering the pandemic. Helen, welcome back to the show. Hi, guys. Nice to hear your voices. So I think some people have this idea that a working vaccine means that the COVID-19 thread is just gone or zapped and it's kind of game over for the pandemic. But as you report in a new story, the reality is likely to be much more nuanced than that. You know, in fact, a vaccine won't necessarily prevent all or, or even most infections. Tell us what you learned from your reporting. Yeah, this is a really important thing that people aren't discussing with the public, and it, it will be really critical to get across to folks what they can actually anticipate from a vaccine or multiple vaccines when they are ready. The issue is that human immune systems don't generally develop what's known as sterilizing immunity to respiratory pathogens. You know, we can be infected multiple times over the course of our lifetime to things that infect us through the mucous membranes of our nasal passages and our throat. So some experts are concerned that if you can't develop 
sterilizing immunity, which would be effectively stopping an infection in its tracks, naturally that a vaccine isn't likely going to be able to do that either. The hope is that vaccines against uh, the SARS-2 coronavirus will generate protection for a while and that they will likely mitigate the severity of disease. As several experts I spoke to put it, you know, what these vaccines may do is turn this into a cold rather than something that can cause life-threatening and even fatal pneumonia cases. It's going to be really important to set the public's expectations of how effective um, these vaccines can be. It may turn out that they're like the flu vaccine that we get, you know, every year or we're urged to get every year, that they mitigate uh, illness, but maybe don't prevent all of the illness. But as you well know, you know, people don't think that highly of flu vaccines. They don't credit flu vaccines for the severe illnesses that they they prevent. They think flu vaccine doesn't work that well. And you really would want to get out ahead of the situation and message to the public so that expectations are, you know, in line with what the vaccines can actually do. So under Operation Warp Speed, the Trump administration hopes to have 300 million doses of a vaccine ready for domestic use by January 2021. Even if clinical trials go off without any complications, is there any reasonable chance of this happening from a logistical perspective? I guess I would not say that it could never happen, but it's a very, very heavy lift. I mean, as you know, we only really learned about the existence of this virus in early January 2020 to go from there's something new happening, we don't know what's causing it, to having multiple vaccines developed, tested, and made in bulk and ready to be deployed in 12 months is something the world has never done before, and it will be an enormous challenge. Okay, so let's talk about what it would mean if, if that does happen, if the U.S. can gobble up early supplies of the vaccine. You've read a story about the ramifications for the rest of the world in this scenario where the U.S. corners the market for a vaccine. What did you learn? We have a difficult situation ahead of us as a world and as a country. When vaccine becomes available, it's going to be available in you know, millions or tens of millions of doses initially, eventually, maybe fairly quickly into hundreds of millions, but there's 7.8 billion people on the planet. And a lot of them will want to be vaccinated against this virus. That's going to take time. There are certainly lots and lots of groups, including the World Health Organization, the Wellcome Trust in the United States, the Gates Foundation, that are trying to work to figure out ways to ensure that there is equity in access, that poorer countries, for instance, are able to get vaccine. It's not like a geographic lottery that the countries that produce vaccine within their borders use vaccine even to protect low-risk people when high-risk people in other countries have to wait because they don't have any production within their borders. You know, people are talking about potentially trying to get manufacturers to contribute enough doses to, say, vaccinate healthcare workers around the world because of the critical role healthcare workers play 
in mitigating the impact of, of this terrible pandemic. But at this point, it doesn't feel like there's anything coalescing in terms of widespread promises of, of early access to vaccine. And so there's going to be a lot of pressure. I mean, pressure within countries, certainly any country that is producing vaccine will face pressure from its populace to protect them first, but also pressure from allies and other countries who will be saying, are you really truly going to vaccinate teenagers before our healthcare workers can be vaccinated? So beyond the global implications, there are lots of questions about who gets the vaccine first, even within the United States. It could potentially be given first to healthcare workers, as you mentioned, or to people who are most vulnerable. There's also the possibility of a lottery approach, uh, which was famously depicted in the suddenly extremely topical film Contagion from 2011. Let's listen to a scene from that film in which a vaccine for a frightening respiratory illness gets allocated based on a Vietnam War-style draft scheme in which birthdays are drawn at random. We shall now begin the drawing, John. First MEV-1 vaccination are those people born on March 10th, March So Helen, how fierce do you think this fight is going to be over who gets the vaccine first? I think it is going to be a really heated issue. I don't think there's going to be a lottery approach. I haven't heard anybody floating that idea, and I don't really think that would be seen as the most effective way to use what will be initially limited supplies of vaccine. Typically, when there's a pandemic, there's a group of experts that advises the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on vaccination policy. That group is called the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP. Typically, it would be their task to try to figure out what the priority list would be for who should get this vaccine. And one would anticipate that healthcare workers and other frontline workers who are at, you know, high risk of exposure because of what they do would be at the front of that line. You'd also expect that seniors, because of their much elevated risk of severe disease and death in people over, say, 65, that they might be towards the front of the line. I would say, though, that in this pandemic, we have seen some decisions that we would normally have expected to have been made at this level of the CDC being taken out of their hands and being made at higher levels of the government, including in the White House or by the White House task force. And I think it remains to be seen at this point how scarce supplies of COVID-19 vaccines will be allocated when they are ready to be used. So I want to switch gears to talk about the opposite side of this coin. What to do if people refuse to get a COVID-19 vaccine? How might federal health officials deal with anti-vaccine activists who refuse to get a COVID-19 vaccine? And should we be worried about that situation? I think we do need to be worried about it, especially given that these vaccines are going to be approved in record time with fewer months or years of study than is typical with a new vaccine. That will make people nervous. And depending on how much COVID-19 activity there is at the time when vaccines become available, that may impact people's willingness to become vaccinated. My sense is that most people are eager to be vaccinated, but certainly there will be some people who will want to step out of the line. Whether anyone is going to try to mandate that you know, all Americans be vaccinated? I don't know. I'm not sure I I would see 
people moving to force people to be vaccinated with this vaccine. First off, supplies are going to be limited and um, they will be used in the people who want to get them. Helen, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. News that's coming from Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan Chase. These three companies are saying that they're planning on partnering up when it comes to their U.S. healthcare employee, U.S. employee healthcare. Uh, again, three companies. That was a clip from CNBC in early 2018 when three of the largest companies in the U.S. teamed up to start a joint venture focused on healthcare. That morning, the stock prices of health providers, pharmacies, and benefits managers all tanked on the widespread assumption that Amazon, after years of speculation, was finally going to disrupt the market for healthcare in America. Two years later, however, that hasn't happened. Instead, that joint venture, called Haven, has struggled to make progress on its goals amid a series of high-profile departures. The latest and most significant was Atul Gawande, the famed surgeon and writer who is resigning as CEO of Haven. Stats Casey Ross has been covering Haven since before it had a name, and he joins us now to talk about what's been going on inside the secretive venture. Casey, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So Casey, from the day we learned about Haven's existence, there was a lot of speculation about just what the company was setting out to do. What did you learn about its actual ambitions? Well, it took us quite a, a period of time to figure out exactly what the company was up to because they were so secretive about it uh, and weren't able to talk about it publicly. You know, part of that's understandable because they were still in stealth mode, didn't want to tip their hand in the market. But we eventually learned from court documents and, and proceedings that they were interested in providing better technologically enabled primary care services to employees, trying to lower the cost of prescription drugs, help people better manage chronic conditions. Those were the sort of three pillars that we learned about. So let's talk about Atul Gawande. He's the celebrity physician who was brought in to lead the company in 2018. How did Atul come into the picture? Well, he caught the attention of the three founders, uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, Warren Buffett, and Jeff Bezos, through a series of New Yorker articles that he wrote, which really discussed the challenges of the high cost of healthcare in the United States. So he kind of had attracted their attention through those articles, and then he wrote a white paper for them about you know, his approach to lowering costs within the three companies and, and was able to uh, get the job. So now Gawande is stepping back. So what led to his resignation? Well, it was two years he was in the job, and there was really no at least publicly documented meaningful progress that Haven made. So we don't know much about what they were working on, what internal challenges they faced. It appeared as though there was some duplication with the efforts of Amazon to improve primary care and access to health care services for employees. We also learned that there was a fair amount of departures from the company. Uh, Gawande was successful in recruiting a lot of you know top pedigree talent to the company, but they were having trouble retaining those employees. And then COVID-19 hits. And I think as a commentator, Atul was very motivated to participate in that discussion because of the secrecy of the organization. He wasn't able to do so. And so I think that was a large part of what motivated him to step down as CEO. That retention aspect really struck me as interesting. Uh, this week, you and our stat colleague Aaron Broadwin published a story looking at what transpired inside 
Haven, and specifically at the difficulty it had retaining talent, why would a company backed by the likes of Amazon, J.P. Morgan, and Berkshire Hathaway have trouble in that department? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting dynamic. They founded this as a nonprofit company. So that limits their ability to provide competitive benefit and compensation packages, especially stock options to employees which aren't available under this uh, structure of a company. So, you know, that may have had something to do with being able to offer, you know, the type of package that a lot of these employees could command in the private market. Uh, You know, and there's also just the concern about you know, having a clear strategy, mission, and time frame, which they were going to execute demonstrable impacts on healthcare services. So Casey, what's next for Haven? Are people in healthcare counting them out of the future of the industry? I mean, there's some doubt about whether they're going to be able, after all of these departures, and especially executive departures in the C-suite, to be able to reorganize, find their momentum and make a difference in the short term. I don't think anybody's counting them out. These are three huge companies. They have a lot of money behind them and they can go out and continue to hire people. Maybe they um, go a different direction. Maybe they structure it differently. But I think it's too early to say that it's not going to have an impact. But so far, they haven't made much of a dent. And Casey, is there a cautionary tale to be learned from the first couple of years of the Haven Project? I think it would be that if you're going to build a business in healthcare, which is an enormously complicated industry, you need a tactician to lead it. You need somebody who's really familiar with the business mechanics, knows about that discipline very well, because it's just very difficult to pluck somebody who doesn't have that level of experience, put them in that position and expect results. Casey, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me on. Finally, we want to take time to remember Larry Kramer, the legendary AIDS activist and writer who died this week at the age of 84. Kramer was the founder of the influential organization ACT UP, and it's hard to overstate the effect he had on how we talk about healthcare in this country. As Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease doctor, put it in 2002, quote, in American medicine, there are two eras, before Larry and after Larry. Larry had a singularly angry style. He was known for raging against and colorfully calling out people he didn't think were responding with sufficient urgency to the HIV AIDS crisis. So joining us to discuss Larry is a one-time reporter who used to cover him. That's our very own boss, Stats Executive Editor Rick Burke. Uh, Rick got to know Larry Kramer in the mid to late 1980s when Rick was a rookie reporter for The New York Times in Washington. So Rick, tell us the story of how you first came to know Larry Kramer. Well, this was during the late years of the Reagan administration. And I was, as Adam said, a rookie reporter in Washington. And my phone would ring and it would be Larry. And I had never met Larry face to face, but he would call and harangue me and harangue and harangue and harangue and say, why aren't you writing more about AIDS? And really angrily and making me feel guilty. And the reality was that I didn't cover health. I didn't cover AIDS. I didn't cover the White House. But he kept haranguing me because I was a reporter in Washington for the New York Times. And it made me even more uncomfortable because I was gay but closeted. And in those years, being gay at the New York Times was not something you wanted to be public about. So I thought, why is he singling me out? 
What does he want me to be an activist? What is he doing to me? Leave me alone was my feeling. So, Rick, you corresponded with Kramer earlier this month when you emailed him about a story that Stat was working on about Gilead Sciences. Tell us about that exchange. First, let me just say, in the intervening years, I warmed up to Larry and I would send him emails now and then. And I sent him an email a few weeks ago for a Gilead story and he got back to me in minutes And he said, those crooks, those awful bastards, whatever. And obviously his tone had not changed from decades ago. And he had every bit of the fight in him to the very end. Yeah, I think that precise quote was, Gilead has always been selfish, greedy, tricky pigs. I've always hated them, end quote, (laughs) which was uh, really true to form. What are we going to do, Rebecca, without having someone like that to count on for juicy quotes? Yeah, he was uh, certainly one of a kind. So as many commentators have pointed out, Larry Kramer died in the midst of another plague, one that could really use an agitator like him to push the government on its response. Do you have any thoughts on that, Rick? You know, does it feel noticeable that we don't have sort of an equivalent of of Larry Kramer in the COVID-19 era? Or is that kind of rage taking a different form? No, I think he's a good model for rage. And but I don't think there's anyone like him. And I think Tony Fauci would say that he really helped the cause and his rage and his loudmouth behavior really led to saving lives and led to this country moving faster on dealing with AIDS. So I think I don't think there is anyone like him out there right now who can galvanize people and get people's attention in that way. Yeah, I was going to say, if you've ever seen the movie How to Survive a Plague, which came out Uh, I think about seven years ago, which really focuses on ACT UP during the AIDS crisis. And Larry is a key part of it. And, you know, his fiery style and acerbic wit is all on display. But one of the things that was striking to me is, you know, beyond the fact that he makes for a great quote, which I think we all appreciate, is there was this like moral clarity underlying everything he said that no matter how angry he was or whom he was calling a murderer, one could never doubt his stance on something and what it meant to him. The moral clarity was certainly central to why Larry was so effective. And what's interesting to me now is in the politics of today, everyone seems to have an agenda that's political. And Larry's agenda was not as crassly political. It was more, in my view, about saving lives. And it wasn't necessarily Democratic or Republican. It was against Ronald Reagan because he was not speaking out on AIDS or doing anything on AIDS. And I don't think we have anyone right now who has been so consistent for decade after decade about his messaging and about who he's speaking out on behalf of. So, Rick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this episode, what you didn't like, and what virtual medical meetings have been like for you. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, please, of course, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Thank you.